Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fragopoulos. And this is Ghostbusters 2. This is Oeuvre Busters. Save the day! Myself and and my friend Kevin uh, Candardo, who uh, used to host a great podcast called No Holds Barred. Shout out to that. You should get used to listen to it. Uh, when I moved in with him in Astoria, Queens. What? Represent. Uh, we almost bought, we almost spent several hundred dollars on one of, or several thousand dollars on one of the original Vigo the Carpathian paintings. Like we were really close to buying it. Uh, I think how, it would have cost us a couple thousand how bucks. high and or drunk were you Well, both? no, we, we were like, literally, I was like temping in Boston and he was in New York and we were like, he was like, I got to go home and measure the specs in our new place to make sure we can get it inside. We might have to like, I don't know where we're going to put it once we get it in there, but like, I'm, I'm, I'm into this. And I was like, me too, buddy. Let's get this thing. <laughs> so there you go. And it's, um, wow. Do you think you can still get one? Uh, I don't know. Let's not do that now because we have a show to do. George. Oh, yeah. I George, guess we do a show. We're not just George, shooting the show. Yorgos. Yorgos. Can I, can I call you Yorgos? You can call me Yorgos. Yeah, why not? You can call me Yorgos Fragopoulos, motherfucker. Uh, what movie are we talking about? Liam, we're talking about 1955's I Live in Fear. Ooh. Or... Also called... In, yes. Record the, of a, a Living, living Being. being. Mm. Record of a Living Being. What title? I really like that title. So touching. Um, yeah, it does it. For, it, it works for me. <laughs> cool. Good. Good. Good stuff. Thumbs good up. stuff. Um, 1955, directed by Akira Kurosawa and starring Toshiro Mufune. George, what happens in Record of a Living Being? Uh, so Liam, or as I like to call it, I live in fear. Tells the story of Kichi Nakajima, an elderly fountain. Kichi, Kichi. Kichi. Sorry, been meaning to run you through a t- Japanese Please. pronunciation. Uh, yeah, I mean, program. I, I, we could get, I could get lessons right and write them off. Uh, he's an elderly foundry owner who lives in fear, hence the title, um, <gasps> or is just a living being, hence the other title, um, who lives in constant existential fear of a another nuclear attack occurring at any given moment. Um, as such, uh, Nakajima decides to move his family to Brazil, where he buys like a huge and exuberant, exorbitant plot of land. His existential fear leads to his family trying to get him declared incompetent, so that way they could protect the family business and their money and their inheritance. 
Uh, Nakajima is called before a court tribunal, which is actually kind of where the film begins, where we are introduced to Dr. Harada, who is this kind of court mediator who is like a citizen who who is kind of tasked with basically working alongside the lawyers and the judges to declare whether or not uh, Nakajima is in fact incompetent and insane. Um, and he kind of becomes our one-man Greek chorus for the entirety of the action. So the film basically kind of is a slow boil till the very, very end where there's a lot of this tension between the family, a lot of domestic kind of drama about whether or not the family will move to Brazil is the father. And some infighting among the various mistresses and children that yeah, he has. There's a lot of domestic drama and basically just about um, whether or not this man is in fact kind of insane or if perhaps he's the only sane man around. Eventually he destroys his own foundry in order to kind of force his family to move from Japan. Uh, and the film ends in a really, really sad way with uh, Nakajima in a kind of mental hospital, clearly in a kind of deranged state. And he's visited by Harada. And this is where also there's this kind of conversation between Harada and another doctor. Harada is a dentist. And his Harada. Day job, Harada. 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 And Jeez. always um, hit that first syllable, I think. I got to nail it. And basically. Okay. I love you. Uh, I love you too, Liam. And basically, um, they have this conversation about like, well, maybe he's not insane and maybe we're all insane. And if the film ends with Harada basically, uh, yeah, having one more kind of weird discussion with the deranged Nakajima, who is clearly not there. The end. Um, film was produced by Sojiro Motoki. It was written by Akira Kurosawa, Shinobu Hashimoto, and Hideo Agune. Uh, the music was by Masaru Satu and Fumio Hayazaka. And the film was produced and distributed by Toho. Um, the cast. Uh, so there's a lot of people in this movie. You can look it up. And I'm going to give you the... What I'm trying to do now with our cast listings is to hit on the people that we see again and again in Akira Kurosawa movies in, in the hope that maybe that will persuade some discussion. Uh, Toshiro Mifune plays Kichi Nakajima. Takashi Shimura uh, plays Dr. Harada. Minoru Chiaki, who we may all remember from Seven Samurai and The Idiot, plays Jiro Nakajima. Noriku Sengoku, who kind of hasn't been in as much lately, but um, appeared in a big role in The Quiet Duel. And Stray Dog appears as Kimi Nakajima. It's a really fascinating part. She's the one who kind of has very little to say in the film. And Iko Miyoshi, who is the older woman that appears in literally every Akira Kurosawa film, uh, who's wonderful, plays Toyo Nakajima, the first wife to Mifune's Kichi Nakajima. Um, the, a couple quick things about the film. The title of the film actually translates to Record of a Living Being. Maybe we can talk about the significance of that. And, you know, I think from like... Um, the film, okay, so the film didn't get released until 1971, and it was Kurosawa's first box office failure. I think the big takeaway from this, and, and I, I think this is maybe something that's interesting to talk about, but I feel as though, so there was a significant amount of testing of bombs in the Pacific post-World War II. Mm -hmm. And radioactive rainstorms were a thing that happened. And yeah. Japan was perfectly situated to absorb radiation because of the currents and the way that the winds moved. And so 
1954, a year before uh, I Live in Fear was shot, the United States, States tested a hydrogen bomb on Bikini Atoll in the Pacific. The fallout cloud, which spread across an area of 7,000 square miles, drifted over a Japanese fishing boat, boat called Lucky Dragon Number no. 7 and covered 23 crewmen with radioactive ash. I feel as though sometimes here in the U.S. of A., when we talk about the 1940s, well, first of all, when we talk about the 1940s, it's all, and then we won the war and everything was fine. But I think we never talk about how palpable the fear of atomic war was. I mean, certainly it was a part of the, like, our upbringing when they talk about, what was it like when you hid under the desk? Yeah. It was going to be, yeah. A, yeah, that kind of thing. The Cold War, yeah. Like, the Cold War stuff, of course. But I feel like we, we very rarely talk about that at least as like raised in the suburbs of Boston as like the long-term trauma, traumatic impact that that had on a a psyche, the nation, the psyche of an entire nation. Oh yes. I would agree with the big takeaway from that. Well, I mean, but that's just kind of American history that there's never an acceptance of the violence that we enact on other people or other cultures. What do you mean? What are you talking about, bro? (laughs) We don't do that. So I mean, I agree with you. I agree with you there, but it's funny you should say that because I do remember growing up and being young and the first time I remember, you know, being like seven or eight and like hearing about nuclear war and like nuclear weapons and, and having a rational, irrational fear about it. Like, sure, I remember, I remember sure. like it was like 10 or 11. I was like, I was like, I'd, I'd sometimes like just think like, oh my God, like there could be like a nuclear war and everybody would die. And then, then I saw Dr. Strange love and made me feel a lot better about everything. Well, it's interesting because I think that that relates to this is a real. I, so, what do you think? What did you think of the movie? Uh, I wasn't so. I'm glad I saw it. I in, in I enjoyed it. Although enjoy is a very I guess nuanced word. I'm glad I saw it. Well, it's not like a Led Zeppelin song. It's There's, definitely you know, it's, not. It's complicated. It's not right? even. Sure. Yeah, it's not even like. Jeez, like the later a Pink Floyd song. Like the like the yeah. I'm just trying to think like, like what's, Fool in what's the Rain. The, what's the weakest like Led Zeppelin album? Like Led Zeppelin two, four, two is no. good. Doesn't two four, have? Four, doesn't two have has, a whole lot of love in it? Four has Stairway. And uh, like, I'm confusing I'm, two and four. I'm pretty sure Black this is so Dog stupid. Is this is so and rock and roll. <laughs> Rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. Hey, mama said the way you move. That one, gonna Black Dog. Down, gonna make it groove. I think that's, isn't that Black Dog? No, Rock and Roll is like, Man, Led Zeppelin kind of rocks. Forget what I said earlier. I told you, yeah. I'm exhausted by them. So it's not my favorite Kurosawa. And there was something about it that struck me as a little bit too melodramatic. Having also said that, I fucking think this is one of Mifune's best performances. Oh, this is really... it's Okay, so I... I okay, here's the thing. Every Please. movie Akiru Kurosawa made on some level is a banger. True. Like, it's hard to so deny. Far, like, yes. That's the thing that's weird, is it's not like we're, we're going to... And also, we're not going to enter a period as we did in the last season where we're like, oh, cool, now we have to watch four superhero... Well, three, like, DC Extended Universe <laughs> Well, movies. he did last weirdly season, make a Hulk movie a in the 70s, which is just... They didn't really that was work. totally weird yeah, yeah yeah but um i really like this movie it was my second time seeing it um i don't know that i think you're wrong about it being melodramatic but i also think it has some pretty profound things to say about life that feel very contemporary mm-hmm. um like. in terms of well i think you know it's interesting that you mentioned at some point in your life being scared of like nuclear war because you heard about it or like at some point maybe in our lives like 
being anxious about i don't know when i remember like having a conversation with a friend during um uh in 2004 2003 when all of a sudden we were going back we were going you know when we were law for lawfully entering another war in the middle east and being like you know there's remember every time it happens there's conversations about drafts there's just all these like weird palpable things that seem scary in life and so you know, thinking back on that stuff, thinking about nuclear war, thinking about war in general. I remember watching the bombing of um, Belgrade in 91 and mm-hmm. with my family and being like, what does this mean? All that to say that, like, I think it unearths and discusses, like, the anxiety of modern life in very powerful ways and be- and believable ways. And watching it while still in uh, what feels like a never-ending quarantine ish well I, for some of us uh feels it feels like an interesting time to watch it and it feels extra resonant in that regard yeah i think it does i see i mean maybe, okay actually maybe maybe it doesn't do that for me maybe the its sense of anxiety and fear to me even though i think mafuni does a good job of channeling it and i guess maybe obviously like that i guess that's part of the film right that in a certain way he's on this island by himself that the people around him, obviously mm. only like a decade after the fact, are for the most part like, ah, it happened, whatever, it's in the past. Like, what are you worried about? Like, it's done. That's interesting. Um, but I didn't, yeah, it didn't fill me with that kind of dread. And I wonder if that's just because of my naivety and thinking like, oh yeah, like that shit's all in the past. Like, I would, I, you know, I'm not so like, at least consciously, I'm not naive to think that it's, that, You're pretty naive. I mean, I'm, not, I'm. You know what it is? I'm a romantic Liam. Yeah, I believe in the best. Yeah, you are best in all people. But yeah, of uh, course, yeah. That's that's really you pegged that, down that's to it. Really yeah, that's really you. Exactly. Yeah. But that I think that you have nothing but faith in, in no, people. Nothing but faith. Yeah, it didn't convey to me. It didn't do. I think a good job of conveying to me Mufuni's existential dread. Although watching it again now for the second time, I also picked up a little bit more on those scenes where. Uh, Takashi Shimura's character um, does also express a certain kind of the same anxiety but is just in some sort of way again like able to maybe not rationalize Mm. through his Mm -hmm. fear but to just kind of be like yeah maybe this guy has like a point like we all because there's that one scene where he said we all all us Japanese have this anxiety it's it's palpable we know what it's like um you know one of the things excuse me (coughs) you're excused (laughs) One of the things that I think this movie that doesn't come off so clearly the first time you watch it, I feel as though when I I watched this film for the first time, maybe 10 years ago, and I remember, oh, that's the movie where Mifune plays an old guy. And because we're watching these films at the rate that we're watching them, and because when you decide to watch a 16 films, directed by Akira Kurosawa and featuring Toshiro Mifune, you're also essentially watching 16 films starring Takashi Shimura. Mm-hmm. And so he's kind of become, I mean, we're, do, we, we, we're doing an episode about Akira. He's become sort of the secondary focus. And in some ways, the thing that I'm paying as much attention to as the others. And this is the second film we've discussed where he plays an older man in a contemporary society in which he doesn't... In Ikiru, it's very clear from the beginning that he's alienated from his society 
in I Live in Fear, I feel as though it sneaks up on him. He's kind of content with his dentist business. Interesting that they choose to make him a dentist because, like, historically, dentists are, like, the most depressed people I've heard. Like, it's just interesting. <laughs> but he's, like, a dentist. Wait, he has a business with his family. Historically, dentists are the most depressed well, people. Well, like, there's this, like, whole, like, like theory joke. online that, like, like, that, like dentists are just... I have a friend who uh, his dad is a dentist, and he once was like, well, my dad's a dentist. He's a depressed person. Like, dentists are depressed people. I don't know if it's true, but, like, it's a very specific choice. He kind of, like, goes off to this hearing doing his civic duty because he's, like, well-recognized in the society at the time mm. or, like, well-regarded, and it, I think it kind of creates this crack in the fabric of how he's able to process life, and I think that brings up... It's an interesting thing to view him as the central character of the film, because I do believe he's the character who changes the most in the course of the film, and that he ends the... At the beginning of the film, he's sort of like, oh, well, the kids are right, meaning Mifune's kids, like, we live in a different society, the world has quote-unquote changed, what do we have to worry about? And by the end of the film, he's in the uh, mental hospital, so to speak, with Mifune, and he's like, who's the crazy one? I don't know who's crazy anymore. So on that level, it it feels as though the film thematically is touching on a few things. It's touching on like post-World War II industrialization, corporatization, westernization of Japan. And it's also touching on what I think is a somewhat subtle critique of patriarchal roles in a society. Yes. Well, say a little bit more about that. Because, I mean, obviously, again, there's always... It seems like with, again, Kurosawa, there's always this kind of intergenerational tension. Yes. But I didn't try to map it out this time around. In part because also, I think by the end of the film, you're supposed to kind of, if not be entirely on Mifune's side, at least sympathize with him. But I guess you're right. It could be both. Like, obviously, it could be a critique. Well... I'm just kind of thinking about it now. I think you can be both. Simp- I mean, I think we're all sympathetic to our people in our lives who are older than us and still disagree with the ways and customs that they choose to do things. Right. Sure. Like, well, I mean, like, I think the film can be both sympathetic and, yes. and yeah, quietly yeah. But, uh, critical. So what is it saying then about these patriarchal well, figures? I just think it's, it depends. I think you're right. I think it depends on where you feel the film lies in terms of its sympathies. I think it's sympathetic towards them. I think it's interesting that 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 on this sort of panel of civic civic judges, mm-hmm. I don't know how to describe exactly their role. It's three older men and one woman who's a stenographer. Yeah. Who basically has nothing to say. I just think that's an interesting it's interesting that Mifun, uh, Kurosawa chose to include that. Now, that could as much be a reflection of the roles of people at the time. Totally, yeah. But it feels intentional, and there's very little that Kurosawa does that doesn't feel pretty accurate. But, the, um, but I would say that's also probably... I would say that that has to be... It has to be, okay. I could be wrong, but that has, dare you. That has to be a historical fact or more like a, a likelihood rather than a... Statement. Yeah. I mean, even mm-hmm. like, you know, if... It, even if they even within like the american context obviously that would have been like it still is in many respects still like where you would obviously you walk like the halls of like power whatever they might be politically speaking you'll typically find white dudes rather than other kinds of people so like that didn't seem to me like a necessarily like a critique i think if the it, it, 
the critique if the, if there's a critique to be had it's going to be obviously about Mifune's character so let's get there i just want to say one thing in response Please. to that um i think that maybe then that's something that i was looking for as a viewer in the film because i also think increasingly one thing i've learned from all these rewatches is as you pointed out the fact that kurosawa seems to always be making films about intergenerational relationships. And I think many times his surrogate, I think sometimes his surrogate, and I think in the early films, his surrogate might be Mifune. But in some of these films, I think his surrogate is Shimura. Yeah. And in 1955, Akira Kurosawa would have been, let's play a guess Akira Kurosawa's age. 1955. uh, yeah, how old do you think he was? I 40, know, because I'm... Guess. 41. 45. Mm, close. So he's the, entering into middle age. Okay. So maybe that's something that, I, again, as a viewer, I was looking for in the film. Uh, let's hear... I'd like to hear more about how you think that Mifune's role it could be a critique. Well, it's a critique, obviously, if you take him to be this irrational this person who's driven by irrationality and and who then uses again his place in the family to basically destroy the rest of their lives (laughs) especially obviously by burning down the foundry by destroying the foundry he kind of if not completely nerdily destroys their lives he does wreck their lives so that there's this obviously this sense of like well i'm living under this kind of existential ennui I can't acclimate myself to this new age, to this new era. I'm taking all you motherfuckers down with me because you're not willing to tr- make the transition with me to a different place, which is Brazil. Obviously, if I didn't say that in the in the film notes, right? He yeah, he's move, planning to move to Brazil. To Brazil. Yeah, you know what's great in audio is silent consideration. Mm, yeah. When you're like, mm. maybe you should narrate. Narrate it. Liam is erotically touching his lips while he's trying to erotically bring a thought to his mind <laughs> now he is erotically taking a sip of water and now also erotically laughing now he's erotically taking off his shirt no oh, that's Lee, where I, it ends I, I have to oh, stop. <laughs> can't go keep going on i mean i think again um, it's just this this thing of like what is it how does it that you and it, it, it could obviously be both but it's like what is it that you make of the destruction of the foundry and um it's very okay. kind of Lyrian, Lyr-esque. Ah, tell, ooh, tell me more about that. We well, did we did spend some time this week talking about another Shakespeare. So yes, another, keep going. another Shakespeare. Another tomorrow and tomorrow With and John tomorrow in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. But of course. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Yes. Out, continue. out, brief shadow. Wait, out, out, brief brief, candle. candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot Idiot. full of sound and fury. It's a tale told by a fucking idiot. (laughs) This, yeah, this fall on Broadway. Hey, hey, guess who studied the classics in college? James Gandolfini does Shakespeare. To be or not to fucking be, Christopher. What the fuck? Coming soon on Broadway. 
this fall. Bum, 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 bum. Tony Soprano is going back to school. <laughs> what do I got to read this for? Midsummer Night's Dream? Books are fucking lame. Where's the fucking kegger? I'll watch the movie. It's got Christian Bale in it. We should do a fucking panty raid. <laughs> Tony Soprano in back to school. Better. Why is it still that sad narrator? <laughs> I don't know. It's like a Merchant Ivory narrator. <laughs> oh man! All right, where were we? So many good, so many. Good, okay, so many good so people it's dead. Interesting that you bring up Lear. Lear. Yeah. Go. Talk oh, just more about the, that. just about the this idea of what happens when a patriarch decides to pass something on to an heir or the, the the demands let's say that again an older generation makes on the younger generation in terms of let's say transferring over power which also mm-hmm. I, I think is really fucking interesting to think about our current political situation in terms yes of, yeah um especially to watch these <laughs> yes 95 year old men whose minds are clearly just at the twilight of their power trying to i think to one, one is another. clearly at their twilight and he's <laughs> But the other is I'm 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 feeling a little bit better about like a little bit better. But yes, there is something very timely about the way that that the patriarchal figure in this movie chooses to destroy everything that yeah. has been built instead of because he doesn't like the way things are. Because there's also that there's lots of him saying some version of I built this, it's mine to do with what I please. And that also begs the question of to what degree are the his kids in any sort of way sincere about like actually taking care of him because they think there's something wrong with him or because they're just like, no, we want the fuck. We want the fucking money. Got to secure that bag. I think another way that this film is incredibly timely is that we're not dealing with just the, the mental facility of our current white house occupant, notwithstanding (laughs) we're not dealing with a character in this film who is right of mind, mm-hmm. we think, potentially. And one of the tragic, quiet things about this film is being a member of a family where you know that the person who's making the decisions, the person in power, the person who sort of brings the whole family together, and in this case, it's not just the immediate family. It's He also has two mistresses mm-hmm. who have children. And... Um, one of the mistress's fathers is kind of this like money craven guy. Um, But there's something really, I think if you've ever dealt with it, tragic about watching a patriarchal figure who's out of their, maybe potentially out of their mind uh, and having to figure out what to do about them. And so for me, I actually am not, terribly sympathetic towards Mifune's character in this film. I'm very sympathetic to the family and I'm Mm -hmm. very specifically sympathetic to Minoru Chiaki who plays Jiro. Um, Minoru Chiaki played in um, the seven samurai. He played, um, hang on, which is the vamp, George vamp vamp. Um, Liam is erotically Googling for an answer. (laughs) He played in seven samurai. He played Hihachi Hayashida. He's the sort of inexperienced Yeah, samurai. the young guy, yeah. And in Ikiru, he plays Noguchi, and he is in, as well, Rashomon as the priest. As the priest? Oh, as the priest, okay. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, sort of this, he has a little bit of the Shimura in him, and that he's kind of has like an everyman character. And I, I find him very, very sympathetic in this film, mm-hmm. because I think 
he is trying to do what's best and looking the problem directly in the face. And like the mother kind of doesn't want to, which is understandable. And he doesn't, I don't know. He seems to want to secure the family business because he doesn't want them all to get fucked. Right. I'm just, I just don't have a lot of sympathy towards Mifune in the film. I don't. Oh, I disagree. I mean, I think like, again, or just that there's the portray like, Again, that he, like I said, like I think his portrayal of the this existential ennui or crisis is palpable. But for me, it didn't it didn't suck me in enough, or at least like the overall impression. If the film, I mean, that's a, I mean, I guess that's another kind of interesting question. Like, was the film, which I would say probably was, meant to convey this overwhelming sense of anxiety? Um, and there's like one scene, like that. There, there's that one scene where he hears those planes flying overhead. No, it's great. And he has like that flashback, and he like jumps on his like grandchild to protect them. To protect and the child. baby starts to scream. The baby. It's tr- actually no. It's not his grand. That's his child. Oh, that's his child. Sorry. Yeah, um, that part's oh, yes, a little confusing. Yeah, He's yeah, yeah, holding yeah. the baby, and you think it's his daughter, but it's actually his mistress. It's his mistress. Yeah. And sorry. the other guy is her father. And it's, it is a little confusing. And that there's this sense of like. Yeah, that scene worked very well for me. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a really. good scene. Yeah, it's a great it's scene. One of the most most and you get striking f- scenes in the film. You get that flash of lights um, as right. well. Right, because of the lightning strike. Yeah. And I guess we're supposed to also assume we're not entirely sure if the planes are actually there, right? That the entire thing might be entirely in his head. Mm, I never really thought about that, but I, I, totally. I think that's a totally uh, fair reading of that Because his mistress looks at him like, what the fuck are you doing? Um, when he scares the baby, yeah. and it's, it's hard to watch. Um, but so let's. I think that's a nat. What a great segue what to talk s- about the performance of Toshiro Mifune. One might so say it's an erotic segue. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? Are you a fan of this of the performance? Yeah, of course. And he does like such a good job of inhabiting the, um, yeah, and like an old person's body like he walks around with a cane he's kind of like a little bit hunched over he's clearly i don't think he gained weight but he's clearly kind of strapped with some kind of uh belly enhancing equipment yeah i think that's true i think that's true um but uh yeah no it works so i yeah i think he's good i think it's sort of shocking that it's him mm-hmm. i think it's i think from what i understand in reading um Stuart galbraith's book is that he wanted this was another about face for their relationship in that I think, you know, he does these sort of quiet roles early on in things like Drunken Angel, Quiet Duel, Stray Dog. And then he kind of does a and scandal. And then he does an about face and he does Rashomon, Idiot, and Seven Samurai, which are a little bit more um, extravagant yeah. performances, a little more like big. And then he turns around and does this thing, I Live in Fear, which I think is a balance between the two, but also feels like an early example by like what we would consider like the Western standards of quote unquote transformation. Like the mm-hmm. most obvious example I can think of is I didn't watch this movie and I never will, but there's that movie where Gary Oldman plays um, Winston, Winston Churchill. Yeah. And like, you know, he went through four hours of makeup every day or whatever the case was. And it feels like kind of if this film were made now in whatever context, that would be a source of conversation. Like Mufune utterly transforms himself. And like, it's a good performance. He's really good. I do believe that he's super old, and I don't think it's quite as scenery-chewing as he oh, is in Seven Samurai at For all. sure, yeah. Well, I mean, also he's those quieter. glasses. Those glasses that he wears yeah. that make him look really absurd. Just, um, 
It's oh, every German critical theorist would kill for those glasses. <laughs> the, the, I know one. I know one who has them. The Adorno lenses. You just walk into Warby Parker. Like, um, can I try on the Adorno lenses? Ah, yes, of course. They're, of course you can. Of course yes, you can. Absolutely. They're a bestseller in Brooklyn. But just remember, just remember, by getting these glasses, you're going to be insufferable yeah. at parties. Ooh, no one's going to want to hang out with you. Yeah. Then, in which case, I'll just get the Foucault glasses. Ah, excellent. He choice seems of, fun. Yeah, he seems fun. He seems like he was really fun. Do you actually, have anything? Actually, do you have Foucault anything a little was more a lot of fun at certain parties. That's what I've heard. Um, <laughs> Hi, oh. So, um, yeah, I think it's a good performance. I think it's really, it's really strong, and it's interestingly situated between uh, Seven Samurai and Throne of Blood. For sure, for sure. Um, but I just keep my sympathies keep coming back to the family because I wonder. There's an implication in this film that maybe he has some kind of he has a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear, but the film also seems to suggest at a certain point that like, maybe he doesn't really know what's going on. Case in point, the moment when the planes fly overhead Mm -hmm. and it's entirely possible that that could be subjective. And so I, one thing I think that is interesting about that in the, in the context of the film is like, it's so tragic to watch that stuff happen. And on some level it's like it, it sort of feels like it might be a little bit about like watching an elderly person get some kind of cognitive decline. Yeah. And, and in that case, I always feel like very sympathetic to the people who have to witness it. It's, it's very interesting to me that the film never shows a, us a flashback or an earlier scene where we can sort of see Mifune's character, um, whose name is to remind myself the, Nakajima, Nakajima Kichi yeah. Nakajima. We never see him like quote unquote well or you healthy know, or yes. normal. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. I thought you were going to say that you don't get any flashbacks to see what he experienced during the war. Also that, but it's funny uh, watching it again for the second sort of second and a half time this morning. Those opening scenes hit in a different way where you get these wide shots of. I mean, not super wide. Japan. Get, Japan, yeah, the city. A Tokyo specifically, I suppose. And thinking about, and it's kind of like, a, you know, almost like a, a godlike position, right? Looking down into the city and all these people mm. that, like walking around going to work. And it, to me, it resonated with like, oh, or is that like a, this kind of sense of like this ominous eye that's always looking down in the city and then it can any moment can obviously can unleash chaos and destroy it. That's interesting, especially when you think about it in relation to this really jazzy score. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is really good. I, if I, I remember correctly, this was his last film with Fumio Hayazaka, who passed away while they were making the film, and it like totally devastated Kurosawa. I thought he died. Um, yeah, I thought he died during Seven Samurai, which is before this. I uh, could be misremembering, but yeah, I mean, the, regardless, there's the that, jazzy score and there's that weird. What is it like a theremin? They're like. Yeah, I love it. It's such a good score. Yeah. It's so, so good. And very different from anything we've heard before this. Um, yeah, there is. And I, that came up, that comes up a little bit in um, when we talk about Throne of Blood, that there's no POV shots, especially mm. in those early sequences in this film where we're looking down. Yeah, I, I think this film is quietly a little bit about like, like every, I mean, it's about post-war Japan and we see it resonate again and again. In that where, you know, we're post this like horrible moment in Japanese history, arguably in modern Japanese history, the darkest, maybe the darkest, maybe, maybe the darkest moment in all of history. Well, yeah, it's history. a pretty fucking, yeah. Yeah. Um, and traumatic and something that like, as a 
culture they're going to live with forever. And these films are all about the inherent, the tensions inherent in like trying to rebuild a society. I just looked that up. Is there any chance also that this is Kurosawa trying to like make a serious film about nuclear war after Godzilla? Godzilla was 1954. So like, is there any chance that he's like, well, that's kind of a silly way to allegorize or at least address that issue. I'm just going to kind of like confront it directly. Well, it, I, whether it is or it is not, I think it's interesting to think about the two disparate approaches. Yeah, for sure. Especially considering Shimura is in Godzilla. Oh, he is? Yeah, he is in Godzilla. That's oh, correct. God. We've In the West, we've never quite gotten, I think, the right... the Jap- Well, now you can, the Japanese version, can, because yeah. it was reshot with uh, Raymond Burr and stuff. But Takashi Shimura in that film plays Kyoyo Yamane, Kyohim Yamane, who I don't... It's been a very long time since I've seen... I don't even know if I've seen the original Godzilla in its entirety in a very, very... I yeah. remember the 80s version and thinking that was pretty good, but I don't remember the 50s version. So it's well. really... But, it's re- Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I, I think you're absolutely right that... Um, it's definitely discussed in the Galbraith book as something that was happening around the same time. Yeah. The Raymond Burr one's really weird too because he's just like... Walk, he's like around and he's like, I think I know who's guilty of destroying the city. And like, yeah, Mr. Mason, of course we know who it is. It's God fucking Zilla. He's right there. It's really where he's really out of touch. Yeah. Talk about a critique of yeah. patriarchy. And he's like, but I have all this evidence. It's like, I think I figured out who in fact is destroying. Godzilla. And like, yeah. It's that it's huge God. fucking lizard. Do you see the lizard you see monster? The, lizard monster? <laughs> the one shooting fire from its fucking mouth. It's him. I think it's him. Yeah. I think it's him. Um, Yes. I think it must be, if Love? not a direct response, yeah. but a kind of dialectical <laughs> response to to uh, what we're to the trauma that the, the trauma, you yeah. know what I mean, like a nuclear monster for sure, a monster born of like nuclear energy. I think mm-hmm. it, it has to be part of it too. Um, it's a, I think it's a good, it's a strong film. It's you know what it is. So we have, sure. we haven't talked about the end where. Shimura goes to visit Mifune and there's a final shot and this is hard to explain but this is sort of really wonderfully cinematic where Shimura is going down the stairs after having had this confrontation or this conversation I should say with Mifune in which he is sort of questioning the nature of who's sane and who's insane and this is interesting there's a little bit of critique of, of doctors in this film in general because they they kind of were just like, yeah, he's crazy. He's up there. It's sort of similar to Akira when he's told he has like stomach problems or he has like a, but they don't really address the fact that he has stomach cancer, right? Mm-hmm. There's just a little bit of like, we're seeing sort of the way that Kurosawa seems to explore the medical system. But Shimura goes, visits Mifune. Dr. Harada visits Kichi Nakajima. He sort of questions who's crazy. And as he's going down the stairs in this terrific wide shot, Mufune Nakajima's mistress is coming up with the baby. Yeah. And it's a very loaded image. I don't know what it means. But one of the things that I think is powerful about this movie is it ends on a kind of ambiguity that seems to suggest that like we don't know who's right and we don't know who's wrong. There's no moralizing at the end of this film. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And there's also that powerful line where where in the cell, Mifune's character says something like the the earth is burning or the sun is, I forget exactly what it is, but this kind of, 
this image of conflagration and of, of fiery death and destruction. Right. It's also weird at the very end how Mifune turns to him and he goes, "I live in fear." I live in fear. And then it cuts yeah. to black. It's a. I think it's a. It's. I think it's a good. I think it's a good movie. I like this. I like this flick. I liked it. No, I liked it too. I. It just for me it wasn't because we just recently saw Throne of Blood and we discussed it. Um. Yeah, we did these in a, a opposite order yeah. for a variety of reasons. But man, that like that film, for example, like after I was in Washington, I was like, "Holy fucking shit!" This film's a masterpiece. Yeah, and this but film, they're just left me a little bit like it doesn't have to me like it didn't ha- it doesn't have the intimate dramatic qualities of like an ikaru or a stray dog i don't know who needs to hear this but, but different works of arts hit hit you differently yeah of course so yeah but it's so. Al- but also i don't know who needs to hear this it's okay to like some movies more than other movies <laughs> it's okay to like some led zeppelin bands more so than other led zeppelin bands there's only one Led Zeppelin band. Damn fucking straight. Damn oh. fucking straight. Fell for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, before we wrap up, because this is a kind of a shorty. <laughs> That's Go what she shorty. said. That's, ooh. I'm sorry, everybody. Um, we are, with the recording of this episode, get ready. Get ready for it. George Vamp. <laughs> Liam is erotically looking up where we are. In the schedule, he's erotically fucking, giggling. To fucking himself. hate you, fucking hate you. We are, we are. Two, we're halfway. Th- halfway through. We're about. We're about halfway through. Give or take. Nice. We've recorded a little bit ahead. Nice. Um, I think it's worth very briefly chatting like maybe like a midpoint discussion just briefly about like do you feel like for you there's been certain thematic resonances uh between all these films and i think it's interesting to discuss i know that spirituality has been one but i think also when we think about sort of our core things which is politics and masculinity no, I'm throwing this at you. Haven't thought it through. Yeah, but. well, the intergenerational stuff seems to be coming up over and over and over again. There's mm-hmm. also a, a running theme through a lot of the a lot of his work about the kind of the tensions of modernity, just broadly speaking, especially about kind of thinking about the ways in which humans do or don't relate to their natural to the natural world. So it's not also a surprise that a lot of um, elements of kind of environmental degradation subtly come in through the film so like i'm thinking again a lot about like the right. the swamp in um drunken angel that's like in the middle of the town um right. obviously kind of this film as well which suggests that one of the horrors about nuclear war isn't just kind of the destruction of everybody but about like radioactive fallout and what that does in the natural world and obviously you see a little bit about of this obviously played at the plays out of like in throne of blood too so yeah, I mean, I think there's like a lot of those themes like keep coming up, and those are the things that I keep like looking for and keep finding, and that are really resonating with me. Yeah, I think that that's all good. I think also those those sort of commingle <laughs> between spirituality and politics. Like I think that like any yeah. great film filmmaker, you know, it's an interesting thing because filmmaking like this, narrative filmmaking, is all storytelling. And it's been interesting to watch these films become and the style become more confident Mm -hmm. throughout. 
And so what is interesting to me is when you watch a film like, which we're releasing this episode before, but Throne of Blood, I think, is his most visually precise and visually rich film. That's not to say the others aren't, but there's like sequences in that movie that almost do what language in Shakespeare does visually. Yeah. He strips all this, you know, the moments with before um, Wasiju murders the other, uh, murders the King, King Duncan uh, analog, for example, that suggest everything about the story within the frame as opposed to, you know, her, as opposed to him saying something like, is this a dagger I Mm -hmm. see before me or whatever the case might be. It doesn't need the language. It's so visually rich. And so it's interesting how these thematic concerns keep coming out, but I think it's very fascinating to me that there is no, uh, sorry, Kurosawa is able to make all these salient points or call, call to mind all these things about the environment, about politics, about living in the 20th century entirely through visual imagery and storytelling. Yeah. And that's no underrated quality because I think in contemporary filmmaking, there is a need to, in some cases, clearly elucidate what your movie is about. For sure. Yeah. Very very good. There's a a visual clarity in his films that, that is hard, I think, to replicate and also... It seems very seamless and effortless, but it's intensely difficult to pull off. I think also one thing that's come up a lot with these films is that, or with some of our conversations about these films, is that particularly in the 50s, um, let's say from, I'm going to say from uh, Scandal on, there is a recurrence of conversation about Igmar Bergman. Mm. And... Then and I mean Bergman. I love Ingmar Bergman's films. I I haven't seen them all, but the, I've re- every single Ingmar Bergman film I've seen, I love. I'm I'm I Persona is one of my favorite films. Persona, of all time. yeah, it was amazing. Um, and there he seems to be in the league of great directors who can suggest interiority through visual storytelling. Um, you know, and a couple of people I think of when I think about that is Ingmar Bergman. Akira Kurosawa, and I've, I've, I think because we associate him so closely culturally with samurai films that we forget that he was so much more superficially than an action director or the guy that influenced Star Wars or whatever the case right, might be. Yeah. And this has been such like a rich rediscovery of like the power of the medium and its relative and it's and when when it was starting to become what it is now. Like you can mm-hmm. actually draw a line between these films and for better or for worse, superhero movies. Like, the the modernity and the ability to, like, create these complex visual images and the sound mixing and, and the studio production, like, they're very, very, very rich films. For sure. Yeah. Watch them. It's just, they're fucking rule. They're so good. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's almost like I'll, uh, like, we're, like, we spent last season, like, running through a, uh, uh, like a, a briar patch and like getting all sorts of cuts. And this season we're just pouring ointment all over our, all over our cuts. Erotically f- pouring ointment all over our <laughs> I mean, I don't know cuts. how to express it, but it's a hard, no, no, you're right. Yeah. It's, there's, it's, it's there's, hard. there's a panacea or there's, um, there, yeah, like it's, it's good. It's good. See, again, it's not to be like a snob, but it's good to like sometimes just, um, 
sit back and take in like art house films like this and also just because like so many of these films are just they might be like art house but they're just so fucking enjoyable like the seven samurai just a banger fucking throwing a blood is just a banger yeah they're just rashomon is a films. banger rashomon's yeah. a banger um i also think you know to that point it's also interesting to think about this in the big picture in terms of what we've talked like you know our first series and season on john cassavetes available now that was a, a durance test sometimes there's i mean they're great films but they're hard to watch they don't offer the Some simple them, yeah. simple pleasures that it, like a love streams which is you know i think uh, a monumental monument, achievement yeah. of, uh does not offer the simple pleasures that like watching mifune kick fucking ass in seven samurai does uh, in the same sense the it's same a harder sense. it's a harder commitment yeah that that's um seven samurai is legitimately like an action film yeah i'm just saying that like these films have i think have met more than anything i mean i i think that these films have met a in the middle of like a total and visceral enjoyment with like an intellectual yes core and i think one thing that's been interesting along with that is exploring like the complexity of what i think are akira kurosawa's politics right I would say, though, I would assume that the two people that listen to this podcast are already Keith. On, on that boat with us in the sense that mm-hmm. just because something isn't black and white, just because something hits like the two and a half hour mark does not necessarily mean that it's a chore to watch it. Do you have, have you had like a favorite? Have, so two questions. Has there been something you've gone back to and been like, holy shit, this movie rules like one in particular. And has there been any like new discovery for you that you were like, Wow. Throne of Blood was the one wow. I went back to, and I was like, "This so far is my favorite." Mm. The mm-hmm. the one that I saw for the first time that I was like, "I, I maybe the idiot." Now, I mean, me it's too. the first one that comes to mind. Yeah, me the idiot like kind of is a revelation of a movie because there's nothing else in his oeuvre, oeuvre. that uh, oeuvre that is quite so um is quite so. It's powerful. weird, yeah. It's fucking it's weird. It's really weird. And also, um, a, a nice byproduct of this season has been watching two killer Setsuko Hara films. Yeah. She's so good. There we go. That's it. We did it. Uh, anything else we want to say? Just very quickly, I remember this interesting um, uh, Kubrick quote about Dr. Strange Lover. He said the one... I think it was him. He said the one comforting thing about do it in the accent uh the kubrick's accent what would that he's be he's from Bron- the bronx i don't know i'm just joking i don't know it's <laughs> As a kid, actually he do never, your great stanley kubrick impression he never, he never really developed a um an english accent the only thing i can think of hearing his voice is when he's a, in that clip where he's a total asshole to shelly duvall oh making the shining where he's like everyone's waiting on you shelly and you're like Jesus. he terrorized Christ. her did you see those films um shot the screenshots from david lynch's master class where he's basically like it's like i don't understand these people that terrorize other people on set he's like we're making movies like life is good like why would you why would you make somebody else feel terrible yeah well i think that that that, i wonder if there's going to be some sort of conversation that's a critical uh, not a critical but a reappraisal of of some of kubrick's approaches well yeah it happened it was a terrible article about like the problem with stanley kubrick is that he doesn't understand male male toxic masculinity like are you out of your fucking mind have you watched any of the films anyway he said that in relationship to dr strange of the nuclear war that the one good thing or the one solace that exists in nuclear war is that everybody goes with you so wow that's a real that suggests a real fear of fomo Right, well, it's, but it also it's the sense of like, well, once I, I, once I once I'm dead, the world keeps going on. But not if there's a nuclear war. 
Yay. Um, dark. Yeah. Oof. So on that light next note. up on that light note, uh, where are we here? Okay. Next up on the podcast. Front of blood. Throne of blood. With Isaac Butler. With Throne of Butler, Isaac Butler. Throne of Butler, Isaac Butler. Uh, Isaac is a writer, director, theater maker. He wrote a book called um, The World Only Spins Forward, which is about angels in America. And he's writing a book about the method, which I'm super psyched to read. That sounds so good. Um, and, uh, is a prolific tweeter, tweeterer. He's got a great Twitter presence, knows a lot about Shakespeare, knows a lot about theater. And, um, also, Jesus, doing so much stuff, hosts, co-hosts the working podcast Mm -hmm. on Slate, which is very good. Yeah. And he had, uh, the director of Sneakers on, which made me want to go back and rewatch Sneakers. Such a good movie. It's so good, man. So good. You know, uh, the guy that directed Sneakers, you know what other movie he directed? Mm, Conan the Barbarian. The sum of all <gasps> fears. Damn. Not his best favorite work. Movie. Not his best work. Where's your essay on that, bruh? Well, I think I'm just going to do that. Um, I, we'll talk about it. But Okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. I'm bringing this yeah. up on the air. Okay. Um, <laughs> please. We got a Patreon. Ray we did an trip. episode on Ben Affleck. We're going to drop some more stuff. I dropped a review of Tenet recently. Well, Tenet, more like a story of how how I saw Tenet, a ver- of an audio essay by An Liam erotically charged third, film review. I'm doing a child's voice, you... Um, oh, also, I wanted to plug our old friend Michael Carroll. Yes. Has a podcast. podcast now. I'm on the first episode. I've told him he has to get George on it. The name of the show is Judgment Pod T2 versus Cinema, <laughs> which I think is an amazing... Concept concept where he takes where guests choose three films and decide if they're better or worse than terminator 2 <laughs> judgment day he had our buddy annie rose malamet on um it's good it's it's very michael if you know yeah. michael uh it's very michael he's great sort yeah. of ornery yeah yeah it's good um but who cares about him fuck that guy <laughs> uh rate review and subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already um, patreon.com slash uberbusters if you want to throw us three dollars a month for an extra essay by george mad dog fragopolis and uh and military. i'm also on there sometimes doing stuff it's gonna be great uh thank you very much for listening i was liam billingham i'm george living in fear fragopolis and this was uberbusters or, or a record Record of two beta males. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mic drop. Mic drop.